Well, let's pray again and ask for God's help as we open His Word. Now, Father, as we open Your Word together, we do so with the hope and expectation that once again You will fulfill all the purposes for which You have ordained this Word and sent it. And our prayer this morning is that you would open our hearts to receive this truth that is spiritually understood. We need the assistance of your Spirit. And not just to make up the gap between what we understand and what we don't understand. We need His assistance from start to finish. So we're asking that you would be our teacher and guide that you would cause this word to live in our hearts and where we need to be convicted of our sin, bring that conviction. Where we need to be encouraged and strengthened to walk by faith, bring that encouragement and strength right now. Where we need to have our foolish conclusions and even some of those self-centered ambitions stripped away, just remove it. We want to know you as you are. So we submit even our thoughts and imaginations to you. Lest we place them above you. Oh God, help us. Help us to believe all that you will reveal to us. Receive it so that we might be blessed and live it so that we might bring glory to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you open your Bibles with me to Mark's Gospel and find the ninth chapter? Now, Mark is the second Gospel in the New Testament. There are four of them. Most of you would probably recognize the names Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are the authors of these four Gospels. And the word Gospel itself simply means good news. But with specific reference to Christ, these are four separate accounts of the life and ministry of Christ. They're not comprehensive. There's far more that they could have included, said, or told. But this is what the Spirit of God led each of these writers to include. And here at Gospel Hope, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark for a number of months now. And uh, we have made it as far as chapter 9. And today we'll be coming to verse 30. Before I read God's Word, though, I just, want to, I just want to direct your thoughts to another one of those things about uh, humanity that we're all wrestling with, and that is the idea of self-promotion. Self-promotion, as one author writes, is attempting to present yourself to others as an accomplished, capable, smart, and skilled person. Self-promotion can be done through face-to-face conversation on blogs or social media platforms, in public speeches, or even through our mannerisms, posture, speech, or dress. Self-promotion is a natural tendency as we like for others to perceive us as having wonderful qualities such as intelligence and talent. We're all born with this sense of self-promotion. It's real close to self-protection. And this sense of self-promotion often fuels the competitive drive in the workplace and even in the stadium. Some of you have competed athletically before. And we want people to know, 
I'm amazing, or I'm awesome. The bottom line is that we all want to be affirmed and acknowledged, don't we? That we're great. Now, nobody's going to stand right now and go, amen. But you know what? It feels really good when somebody comes along and just says, great job. Man, you did such an outstanding job with that presentation, you know, before our, our committee in the office the other day. Or a parent says to a child, way to go. I really appreciate the effort that you put in. Thanks for not complaining when mom and I asked you to do such and such. Parents like to be appreciated. And some of you have tried to get that, that affirmation from a child, and, and sometimes we slip even into that guilt motivation of like, that's all the thanks I get around here. You know, and then nobody know knows what to say because it's accurate and you know, kids and spouses or whatever realize we should have said something, but now it feels really awkward. So we get it that there's a place even for expressing that gratitude and affirming the good things in one another, but, but this idea of self-promotion is in a category that's different, isn't it? And if you think back over your lifetime, there are probably a number of moments you could point to to say, you know what, that was just my pride talking. The reality is I'm like any one of those people on the screen, but like that guy in the middle just kind of holding the sign out for the world, and sometimes I do it by my words and sometimes by my actions and sometimes I do it by my social media updates or whatever I post because I really do think I'm pretty great and I want the world to know that. You know, Jesus in both his life and the gospel that he proclaimed shows us not only a different pathway to greatness than self-promotion, but he actually calls us to stop promoting self. We could even use the word repent. And as we put our faith in him and trust him, he calls us to a pathway of of humble service. And we're going to look at some of that in Mark's gospel today. So if your Bible is open... I want you to find verse 30 now, and I'm going to read through this portion of Scripture. And if not, it's on the screen for you as well. But we resume this this particular portion of Christ's life and ministry. They, that is referring to Jesus and the disciples, went on from there. And and for those of you who haven't been with us, what's the there referring to? Well, they've just had an encounter, a big mob scene kind of broke out, an argument between the scribes and some of the disciples because a father whose son was demon-possessed had come to him saying, cast out the demon. This causes great difficulty for my child. His whole life he's been afflicted with this, and the disciples couldn't do it, and the scribes started arguing, and a crowd begins to gather, and Jesus comes into the midst, and he actually does the thing that the disciples could not do, gives them several lessons uh, along the way, and interacts with this father just in a, in a in an astonishing and sweet way. And so that's the scene that they are leaving and moving on from. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. So he's looking for a little private time with them. But notice again, this is the third time we've come to this particular theme since chapter, uh, the end of six, I believe it is, And here he says again, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they went to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, 
He asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. It's another strong word for us. I want us to look, first of all, at the mindset of Jesus and what he reveals to us in verses 30, 31, and 32 as he begins to teach again that he's going to be uh, that, that he's going to be rejected and suffer and killed and, and rise again are some key concepts that we need to put in place. And the first is rejection and condemnation. Rejection and condemnation. He uses the word delivered. And that has a very specific reference, meaning deliver over with evil intent. And in this case, deliver over with evil intent to the, the religious powers and authorities of Jerusalem. They will try him. And they will condemn him. And the second thought that Jesus mentions for the third time here is that he will suffer and die. Killed is the word. Put to death. It, it won't be an accident. It will be the intentional outcome of that false judgment and condemnation that he receives. And then the third category, burial and resurrection. And this theme of rising we looked at last week, and he vividly portrayed his power to raise a dead one when after he had cast out that demon from that little boy, the, the boy looked lifeless and may well have been lifeless, but Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up. And Mark's comment was, when he took him by the hand, he rose. Well, Jesus is teaching his disciples that this is what's coming. This is where I'm headed. This is my mission or mindset. But let's contrast that with the mindset of the disciples. Look at verse 33, if you will, please. When they came to Capernaum, and remember, that's the hometown for Jesus and several of his disciples, including Peter. It's probably Peter's house that they enter at this particular point. But then he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Oh, this is awkward. You look at the text. They kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Well, here's the first thing about their mindset that's revealed. They're all ambitious for greatness. Typical road trip, isn't it? There they are trying to get from point A to point B, and in the travel time, an argument breaks out in the back seat, as it were. Jesus, ever patient, ever loving, but also straight and direct, just goes right to it. What were you discussing on the way? And so they don't want to answer because a big dispute and discussion had been going. But here's the key. They argued with one another about who was the greatest. That has the idea of who, who in our little group here of disciples carries the greatest significance? Who carries the most weight? And remember, they've been discussing some of the things about the kingdom that Jesus is teaching, and they're anticipating not that he's, going, not that he's already begun this death march to Jerusalem that'll culminate at Calvary. They think he's on the move to fulfill all those great messianic promises that were given to the great son of David who would establish David's throne forever. 
So they're anticipating this great inauguration, the institution of this eternal kingdom, and obviously Jesus chose us, so we 12 are going to have a a really up-close and personal look at this, and maybe some of us will be seated right next to him when he ascends and then sits on that, that great throne. Who's the greatest? And they're arguing arguing to the point that I would make a a, a second suggestion here, they have been sidetracked from the real mission. Jesus has told them for the third time, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And, And they're still not getting it. Mark says it again in this passage. They don't understand what's taking place here. One author writes, in all three passion predictions, that is, all three predictions that Jesus made about his coming death, Jesus speaks of the necessity of his rejection suffering and death, and following all three of these predictions, the disciples voice their ambitions for status and prestige. Jesus speaks of surrendering his life. The disciples speak of fulfilling theirs. He counts the cost of discipleship. They count its assets. The disciples have yet to learn that the reward of discipleship The rewards of discipleship come only as a consequence of following Christ on the costly way to Jerusalem. So here they are, ambitious for greatness, while Jesus has called them to join him in a death march to Jerusalem. They're sidetracked by the argument. They just had an opportunity to minister in his name and failed because they weren't men of prayer. We saw that last week. And so now Jesus is going to give them some really significant instruction. So look again at the text, because the first thing he says, I would, like to, I would like to describe as the paradox of the back of the line. Jesus says to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all. There's an old headline that caught my attention as I was doing a little research and looking for something to illustrate this point this week. And here is the headline. People are paying up to $1,500 for someone else to take their place in line. That's right. The article in Business Insider reports that what started mostly on Craigslist and TaskRabbit, an odd jobs hiring service, has evolved in New York City into a more sophisticated service. And one example is a New York-based, and here's the name of the company, Same Old Line Dudes, or Sold Inc. for short a team of professional line sitters who will take over your weight for anything. Anything New York City has to offer, from sample sales to Saturday Night Live tickets to the latest Air Jordans. I'm thinking, who, who would have imagined that you could make decent money standing in line for someone else? Some of you would say, I would pay good money for that because I hate to stand in a line. Disney understood this a long time ago, didn't they? And they came up with this marvelous concept called the Fast Pass. And now there's Fast Pass Plus, and I think I understand there's even, what, what is it called, Max Pass? Yeah. And, and so you set it all up, and, and we've made one trip to Disney World in Florida with friends years ago. Our kids were much younger, and, they, and our friends were the experts. And that was where I was first introduced to FastPass. And they had this thing all laid out. And they said, here's, here's what we're going to do. When we enter this particular park and this morning, we're going to go immediately and get fast passes for this particular ride or this particular show. And then, uh, so we'll get the later time, but then we'll go over here because nobody goes over here. I mean, they had that thing mapped out. And it was the greatest week of our family's life. 
And, and relatively speaking, we just didn't stand in too many long lines. I mean, there's some that's just inevitable, right? But even Disney gets the fact that people don't like to stand in lines, and so they'll have other smaller entertainment options for you there, whether it be cartoons on TV screens or some kind of you know, smaller show while you're waiting to get into the big attraction. And I think, how, what, what has humanity come to that you can even be in, in, a, in a place like Disney World or Disneyland and, and think to yourself, I am more important than having to stand in this line to do that ride. Somebody should move me up. There's got to be a way. I'm also amazed when you go to a place like that of how many families end up fighting arguments and things. And, and we saw some of that. I remember thinking to myself, you know, supposedly we're in the, we are in the happiest place on planet Earth, and that's what's going on. Maybe some of it's because they've been standing in line way too long and nobody told them about fast pass. Jesus seats the disciples. He sat down and called the twelve and said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all. I think in one sense he's saying, if you're really going to follow me, you need to go to the back of the line and put everybody else ahead of you. In Luke's gospel, he actually said, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Did you catch that? And see, rather than living your Christian life with a a Disneyland fast pass mentality that says, hey, I want to be first in line. I don't want to wait behind anybody else. I'm too important. I got too much to do. My, my time is more valuable than to stand in this position or I've earned my place in life. I've earned the respect and admiration of others. I've, I've earned a seat at the table where I can voice my opinions in the company. No, I'm not going to the back of the line. Jesus says, if you exalt yourself in that way, you'll be humbled in ways you don't want to be humbled. But if you humble yourself, in time you will be exalted. You know, we ought to be asking and thinking daily as, as followers of Jesus, how can I put others ahead of me? Common courtesies go a long way. And, and you can actually fulfill the, the Lord's teaching and intention here as you line up in certain locations and let others go ahead of you. It's very disarming sometimes when we're out in the community and, and maybe Kristen talks about this sometimes, you go to a place like Costco and everybody just kind of converges and sometimes you're not sure who should go first. Well, you know what? That should be a no-brainer for the people of God. Of course the other person goes ahead of you. And if you suddenly realize that you cut them off, I mean, back the buggy up. I don't think you call it a buggy out here, do you? That's an old southern thing. <laughs> I don't even call it a buggy. I don't know how that just like slipped out of my mouth. (laughs) How can you put your spouse ahead of yourself? How can you intentionally take the position behind in order that you might serve? 
Parents, how do you put your children ahead of yourself without making them the center of the home? I'm not talking about putting them up on a you know, pedestal, as it were, where you, know, you kind of you, you commit the, uh, a little different version of those first slides I put up where every, every time you speak, you're like, my kids are amazing. My kids are awesome. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just saying, how can you model the very thing that Jesus is teaching us here where your kids know that you're a follower of Jesus and you serve him and actually serve them in the right way? So often we're like the disciples, aren't we? Not only arguing about who is greatest, but kind of jockeying for position. We, we want the advantage in the relationships in the home, advantages in marriage, advantages in the workplace, advantages in the community. We want to be first. And Jesus is saying, go to the back of the line. If you really want to be first in my kingdom, learn to be last. And that brings us to the second paradox of his teaching, that next little phrase. He not only says you must be last of all, but you must be servant of all. And this is what I would call the paradox of dusty labor. Do you know this guy? Look closer. It's Mike Rowe. To me, he's an American hero, because, and, and not just because he has a great show concept. I, I think he's an American hero because he highlights the people who do the dirty jobs. That's the name of his show. Jobs that nobody else wants to do but need to be done. And he doesn't just go and, and film them and highlight the work that they do. He actually gets in there with them. And somehow, he is a celebrity who... who when you watch a show or you read even some of the stuff he writes, you never feel like it's all about him. You actually have a sense. It's about these people who are laboring in the dirt and grime and dust and grease of the world so that the rest of us can actually enjoy some advantages. You know, the word that Jesus is using here for service, according to some, means simply in the dust laboring, or even running through the dust. See, I, I like this image, and, and as I was thinking and, and working on this message for this morning, I just thought, you know, Lord, it's, it's just not our default mode to say, how can I get dirty for the benefit of other people? How can I run through the dust in order to bring blessing to those who are around me? This is the term that actually in other places in the New Testament refers to deacons. And they're the servants of the church. Yes, called by God, raised up by God, qualified by God, but appointed for service. Service that also often is nothing more than running through the dust of people's lives and mess and ministry in order to demonstrate the character of Christ himself. And Jesus says, servant of all, not servant of those that you really like, servant of those for whom it's convenient, servant, service to those who will show appreciation. He just says straight up, servant to all. Greatness in God's economy is not reserved for the gifted and privileged Rather, it presents itself to every believer in the common and simple tasks of serving others. 
James Edwards goes on to write, indeed, the more common and humble the task, the greater the deed, for humility is the essence of Christ who said, I am among you as one who serves. And so service to others is the primary way in which believers imitate and fulfill fulfill the mission of our Savior. Servant to all. How can you serve the people who are nearest you? How can you even run through the dust for their benefit today? Something that you don't want to be inconvenienced with, but you're sitting there right now saying, you know what, if I would actually do that, that'd be a blessing to my wife or to my husband or my parents or my kids, my coworkers. Jesus says, servant to all. Now here's a really beautiful thing. Look again at the text with me because he's going to, not only teach it, he's going to model it. He's going to show us an example. And in the, next, in the next verse, we read, he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, and we'll pause right there, well, there it is, he embraces a child. Now, let me give you a couple of things to know about children because they were viewed very differently in that day than we view children now. As I said, in, in our culture, many parents actually idolize their children. That's why their pictures and their achievements are just plastered all over everything. In Christ's day, it was not that way. In Christ's day, children had very little value to the ordinary Jewish man. It's hard for us to imagine, but as one historian writes, the negligible value of of children is suggested by a comment from a rabbi of that day, a great teacher, and his teachings are recorded in in what is commonly referred to as the Mishnah. Listen to what this rabbi said. Morning sleep and midday wine and children's talk and sitting in the meeting houses of ignorant people put a man out of this world. That's just a little different way of saying those things drive me crazy. And this is supposedly a really spiritual man. That was a reflection of the values of the day. So it wasn't even just that children should be seen and not heard. It's kind of like, we don't even want to see them. We don't need them. This same historian goes on to write that girls under the age of 12 could be sold as slaves by their fathers. Now, does that give you a little idea of the the cultural norms of Christ's day? So when he pauses at this point in, in, in teaching this lesson to the disciples and actually takes a child into his arms, that would be one of those what is going on kind of moments. What is he really doing? And Jesus uses the word receives then as he goes back to explaining what he has done by taking the child into his arms. And that conveys the idea of of taking or receiving that child to yourself, Uh, of not just making room in the house as they were or pulling up an extra chair to the table, but actually receiving that child to to your heart. And so these children actually were the powerless and insignificant ones of that culture. And there'd be others who'd be included. And we've watched all through the Gospel of Mark, haven't we, that Jesus is always reaching to the outsiders. We've seen him touch lepers and go out of his way to deal with the people who've been marginalized, the woman with the issue of blood who was disqualified both spiritually and physically from worshiping with her family and friends and from interacting with Uh, people in the neighborhood. Jesus is always reaching the outsiders and drawing them to himself. And here he takes a little child 
who is the epitome of powerlessness and insignificance and says, come to me. But then he intensifies the significance. Look at the next phrase. So now he says to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. That's astonishing. You see what Jesus is doing? He's helping us to remember that even those insignificant people are valued by him and there is this connection to him, if you will. To receive the powerless and insignificant is the same as receiving Jesus himself. So you can't come and say, oh, I'm all about serving Jesus and and then turn your back on and say, ooh, to the insignificant powerless ones around you. But he continues to intensify the significance of this because then he goes on in the next phrase, and and the one who receives me receives the one who sent me. Well, that's God the Father. What stunning significance Jesus brings to this concept of taking our place at the end of the line with respect to our own rank and dignity, not even being worried about it, certainly not to the place where we would argue with others about our own greatness. But now he says, you not only go to, need to go to the back of the line, you need to open your hearts and your arms, as it were, to the powerless and insignificant ones and embrace them as the clear testimony that you are my follower. So that begins to sanctify, if I can put it that way, everything from working in the nurseries right here, and we're always in need of nursery help. Just stopping and pausing to interact with someone who might be the neglected one in a group. Just keeping your eyes open for the outsiders. Who are the marginalized ones? Who are the ones that even just would slip into a church service like this and not really want to be noticed and then make their way out? But because you have your eye on Christ, first of all, you've also got your eyes open to them, and you're like, I'm not going to let them leave this week without a hug. And there are some of you who do that. You are guilty of this very thing, and that's a good thing. And some of you are like, I'm not a hugger. Okay, maybe you should ask Jesus to grow your heart a little bit. (laughs) He'll get you to where he wants you to be. You say, well, I'm not a hugger, but... There are other ways that you could bless and serve, aren't there? Just a warm greeting. A, a, a moment of, of genuine interaction. How are you? Being sensitive to the environment. And, and maybe they're not in a position to have that conversation right then. And, and, and so because you love them, you, you release them just with that quick greeting, how are you? And they say, fine. And it's clear that like, their mind is somewhere else. But you say, you know what, I'm going to come back in a couple of days. Maybe I'll make a phone call. Maybe I'll text them. Maybe I'll vox them. Um, Maybe I'll invite him to coffee. But just that sense of, of closing the distance between your heart and their heart, between your soul and their soul. Now, as we begin to think this through, and we're going to transition to the Lord's table here in a moment, but as I try to do each week, I do want you to think in terms of what's this going to look like? And when you think in terms of serving from the back of the line, if I can combine those two paradoxes into one general thought, what, if, if you began to do that, Can you imagine the difference it would make in your marriage, in your family, your work, your ministry, this community? Sadly, most of the time, we're just as ambitious for greatness as the disciples were, and we want to be in the front of the line. 
we want our spouses or our children or our friends or our coworkers to run through the dust for us. How are you serving the people around you this morning? How are you opening your heart to the powerless and insignificant ones right here? When Jesus issued that call to us, and we looked at this just a couple of weeks ago, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We couldn't fully understand at that moment what all it would mean, but he's filling in the blanks for us. And so we deny ourselves and go to the back of the line. We deny ourselves and run through the dust so somebody else doesn't have to as we serve. We deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. You know, I have this thought, or had this thought over the last couple of days, even as I was thinking about preparing for the Lord's table. And there's another passage I want to go to here, but it, it occurred to me that in one sense, when you and I go to the back of the line, we can ev- never actually be the very last one. There's somebody else who's in the back of the line and will always be there. And you know, that's Jesus himself. You say, what do you mean? I've never heard that kind of thing. Well, I'm... I, I'm tying in two different scriptures, if you will, and I want to take you to Philippians 2. You can open your Bible there. It's just a few pages beyond where we are in Mark's gospel, but I want you to think about what Christ actually did to serve us. Paul writes in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Well, we've seen a good example of that in the disciples. We see that in ourselves. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. So we're, we're putting other people ahead of ourselves. And, and the image of a line begins to develop again. You're saying, you go ahead of me, please. You're, you are more important. And then Paul writes, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he says in verse 5, look at this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That is, as you saints are in union with Jesus, you really already possess this. It's part of that that great gift of Christ's righteousness that has been given to us, but you still need to cultivate this and act like it and live like it. Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, there it is, and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the back of the line. You cannot go any further in humility than the cross of Calvary. And you know what? God will never ask you to go to that depth of humility in your service because Jesus did it and he did it for all and he did it once for all. So the ultimate place of service and humility has been occupied. The ultimate service has already been fulfilled. That's what I mean when I say, even as you seek to go to the back of the line, so to speak, to put everybody else ahead of yourself, you just have to remember that the greatest servant and the greatest display of humility is just over your shoulder at the cross. You know, Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he has not done and then some. So when he calls you and me to serve all, 
He knows what the ultimate cost of serving all really is. And our service will always stop a little short of that. So as we come to the Lord's table, I want you to think of the, uh, of the fact that Jesus has actually done for you, to a much greater extent, what he's asking you to do for others. He was placed last that you might be placed ahead of him. He served you in order that you might have life. And this bread and this cup that we're going to share are these powerful, visible, tangible symbols to remind us of all that he has done.